story of our country's relationship with Afghanistan didn't end when the 82nd Airborne commander walked up the ramp of a C-17 and, and flew out of Kabul in, in August of, of 2021. There were something like 80 or 85,000 Afghan evacuees who wound up here in the United States. And that was the big challenge. How do we keep the faith with these people? How do we help these folks out who, who many of them spent years of their life standing alongside our brothers and sisters in arms, putting themselves in the harm's way to achieve the goals that, that we were working towards during 20 years in Afghanistan? Welcome to the 1CA podcast. Your host today is Mr. Rob Bedreau. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with a partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassoc.org. I'll have those in the show notes. We're joined today by Major Jimmy Johnson and Staff Sergeant Greg Schaefer. Major Jimmy Johnson is a Marine Manpower Officer and Civil Affairs Officer. In 2021 and 2022, he mobilized in support of Operations Allies Welcome with a Civil Affairs Detachment from the Marine Corps' 4th Civil Affairs Group. In his civilian career, he practices law with the Department of the Navy's Office of General Counsel in Norfolk, Virginia. Staff Sergeant Greg Schaefer enlisted in the Marine Corps in 2009 from Evansville, Indiana. He spent his first five years on active duty in the infantry with deployments to several countries, including Afghanistan and Yemen. Transitioning to the reserve component in 2014, he laterally moved to civil affairs and completed his bachelor's and master's degrees in justice, law, and public policy. Since then, he has provided CA support to several multinational exercises around the world and mobilized in 2021 for Operation Allies Welcome. All the participants today would like to note that all of their views are stated in their personal capacities and do not necessarily represent those of the United States government or any of its agencies or components. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, I'm, I'm very glad to be here. I, I'm excited to be here too, and it's nice to have the Marines taking the podcast over for a change. Good stuff. So, Major Johnson, tell me, how did a bunch of Marines end up doing civil affairs activities for the Army on a base full of Afghan evacuees in rural Wisconsin. It was a huge project that we got involved with and had the, the honor and, and the privilege to support. Just to give you a little bit of context and help the listeners understand a little bit of how the work that we were doing as a part of Operation Allies Welcome to evacuate U.S. government personnel, private citizens, but then also tens of thousands of Afghan civilians from Kabul in, in August of 2021 to fly as many people as were possible out of Hamid Karzai International Airport. And of course, we all saw the very upsetting photos and videos of that effort, including the loss of 11 Marines, a Navy sailor, and one Army soldier during that evacuation effort. The back end of that evacuation was, what do we do with all these folks that have now gotten out of Afghanistan, been given humanitarian parole or some other form of legal status in the United States. I think it ended up being thing between 75 and 85,000 Afghans who were brought to the United States on very short notice. How do we take care of those folks? How do we do right by them? And that's where we make the transition from Operation Allies Refuge, the evacuation operation, to Operation Allies Welcome, OAW, which was the care and resettlement operation. 
OAW was a U.S. NORTHCOM defense support to civil authorities mission, DISCA, to support the Department of Homeland Security to operate eight resettlement sites at military installations across the United States. So these were places to house, care, feed, but also educate and, and provide social services support to these tens of thousands of people who were on their way to making a new life in, in the United States. The Marines initially had two pieces of that work, one at Fort Barfoot and another at Camp Upshur, Quantico. And our civil affairs detachment was mobilized a little bit late in the game to get out and support OAW. The first Afghans reached the United States at the end of August in 2021, and our mobilization date was 1 December. And we were initially deployed to Quantico, but by the time we got there, it was very, very close to completing operations. Most of the, the population of the, of the camp at Quantico had, had been resettled. And so what do we do with this group of civil affairs Marines who are on five-month orders to support the Marines piece of OAW? The, the answer was actually to reassign our civil affairs detachment out to the Army's task force working at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. And so we packed up our bags and flew from Quantico out to Wisconsin in the dead of winter between the end of 2021 and into January of 22. We felt a little bit like we would have been in some ways better prepared to actually deploy to Afghanistan and do civil affairs in Afghanistan than we were to deploy to Wisconsin. But it turned out to be a, a really great opportunity to work with a, a very good group of Army soldiers, DHS civilians, other civilians from the, across the interagency and across the, the alphabet soup of NGOs who were doing that work at Fort McCoy. When we arrived, there were still about 10,000 Afghan evacuees. The term we use is guests for Afghans who were on base with us. We steer clear of the word refugee that has a pretty particular legal connotation that goes along with it. And at that point, we're helping these people to start transitioning to the next phase of their life. So we like using the word guest of the United States government. We were, were very fortunate to, to work with a group of army leaders who were very familiar with the civil affairs discipline. The task force commanding general, Brigadier General Andre Carter, and her chief of staff, Colonel Scotty Linnae, both army reservists who had a background working either in or, or very closely with the civil affairs forces, the guidance that we got from the CG and from the chief of staff was pretty much just do civil affairs. And that's perfect. We were able to get in and take that maneuver space that they gave us to do a, a good estimate of what the, the situation was in the civil environment and then start racking and stacking our priorities. It was like a really professional golfer uh, who's, who's been looking for just the right pitching wedge you know, that they'd been missing from their bag. When we got there, we, we were very warmly welcomed and, and were put to work immediately. Okay. So you deployed as the detachment commander, is that correct? I was. Quantico was about 18 Marines total, and we split up. Ten of us went to Joint Base McGuire-Dix-Lakehurst in New Jersey, and then I took a group of eight Marines to be a detachment minus going to Fort McCoy. The chief of staff had set up a very active female engagement team and we integrated those soldiers to turn it into a sort of minus 
reinforced detachment. And that worked like gangbusters. We had a very robust capacity. And then by linking up our cool trained and very experienced civil affairs Marines with a lot of really motivated, savvy, thoughtful Army soldiers who had been doing the work for several weeks, we were able to give really, really good coverage to the task force. And being the best vehicle for a lot of the NGOs and interagency partners at the camp who, who needed to do outreach with the guest population, we wound up working very, very closely and, and even integrating some of those interagency and NGO partners into our civil affairs teams, basically be some additional augmentation to where we're really ending up sending Swiss Army Knife teams out where it's Marine civil affairs specialists, Army female engagement soldiers, Department of Homeland Security, NGO immigration and resettlement specialists. It wound up being a really, really good combination. On top of all that, it was me and Staff Sergeant Schaefer. We had a very, very light detachment headquarters as sort of the G9 civil affairs cell within the task force headquarters. I spent a lot of time going to meetings and less time out in the field than I would have liked, but that was sort of the bargain that I made so that I could give my team leaders the time and sea room to work with the guest community. So that's what our scratch-built civil affairs detachment looked like. Good stuff. So you mentioned a couple partners in the gym, if you will. You had DHS folks and uh, some NGOs. Any other particular organization that kind of stick out in your mind is having a really important role that tied into what you all were, were looking to accomplish? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll anchor down on DHS for just a moment and talk a little bit about DISCA, Defense Support to Civil Authorities. That is not a common Marine Corps task. And so it, it took a little bit of adjustment for us to plug into it. When we deploy, or even when we do humanitarian operations, we go abroad, right? We're expeditionary in character. But here, the need was so great that we're deploying to support domestic civil authorities in what is essentially a humanitarian relief mission in the homeland. Even within DISCA, Allies Welcome was an oddball. Typically, for a hurricane disaster response, FEMA is the lead federal agency. They are leading the way. And typically, U.S. Army North forces are providing support to FEMA as the lead federal agency. Here, the Department of Homeland Security was the lead, and everybody was supporting them. And so it was a little bit of a new process for our DHS colleague to be serving in that role. And it was a, a learning process for us to be supporting them. But it ended up working out very well. We at Fort McCoy had a DHS coordinating official who was our boss. Everybody in the task force from the DOD side, from the interagency side, rolled up to that DHS federal coordinating official. There were other interagency partners on deck. Department of State had the point when it came to coordinating resettlement for the guests to help them get on to the rest of their lives. And Department of State was using contracted support to do that work. It was something that I was not familiar with, but it made a lot of sense. We actually had a bunch of non-governmental organizations who had been contracted to support the OAW mission in different respects. So for instance, the International Rescue Committee and the International Organization for Migrants were contracted to support Department of State in processing the, the resettlement. And that was just great. These were the old pros from Dover some of them had come out of the field, you know, all over the world, working in some very challenging environments to come and do this work. And so brought just a ton of expertise, a ton of experience to that work and, and really made it a lot better. 
in addition, we had contracted out the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops to provide social services for the guests, but also just kind of morale, welfare, and recreation. There were even classes that USCCB was able to set up, and we, we were sort of running kind of a mixture of daycare and day school for the children who were at the camp with us. So that it wasn't just the green suitor soldiers and Marines having to do that work, right? We're good at moving stuff around. We're good at getting a lot of people housed and fed and taken care of. But providing the human touch, it was excellent to have the support from the NGO contractors in the task force. That was a huge value added for, for the work that we were doing. You mentioned a couple, I'll call them unicorn aspects of your mission. So you're performing your mission on U.S. soil in a humanitarian context, something that, uh, as you pointed out, are kind of outliers in, uh, in the way we think of civil affairs activities. So receiving a mission as broad or flexible, if you will, is go do civil affairs. What did that mean for your detachment in terms of mission planning, civil prep of the battle space? What were you looking at to get yourselves prepared once you hit the ground? Yeah, I'll talk about Fort McCoy just because we wound up spending most of our time there. By the time we got into Quantico, it was very few guests left over. And and we really kind of took that almost as our pre-deployment training to kind of get our heads around just the, the experience of the guests leaving Kabul their first few months, you know, bouncing around between bases and stations overseas on their way to the OAW camps uh, all over the U.S. With those few weeks of of work in Quantico behind us, we had a pretty good idea of what these folks had gone through, what some of the problems were that they were facing. And so we were able to, you know, I won't say hit the ground running in Port McCoy, but at least at a good three mile per hour route march pace. I think that was very helpful to have that behind us. The other thing was we took a week to just be here, get our teams out into the neighborhoods, working with the the guests and also introducing ourselves to both the uniformed and the civilian leadership that were working in support for several months before we arrived. And that week was kind of a luxury that I, I thought we needed to, to have in order to make an informed judgment about what was going to be our primary focus of, of effort. And I'm happy to talk about what we came up with. Before we do that, let me ask you, did you have a particular philosophy or approach just recognizing that this mission was being carried out on our home turf with a lot of folks paying attention? What was shaping your leadership uh, for your detachment? Yeah, the guiding light was respect, empathy, and understanding. I think oftentimes when we as Americans think about people coming here to our country for the first time, we think about it almost like they've won a lottery ticket, right? We're proud to be Americans. We love our country. We're true believers. And there was some of that with a lot of the guests that we were working with. There was a recognition that there were going to be opportunities open to them here in the United States that they may not have had if they had kept on living their lives in Afghanistan. But along with that was the way that the decision was made for them. These very often were leaders in Afghanistan, civil leaders business leaders, military leaders who were forced to flee what for many people had been very successful professional lives of, of service to their country and were forced, you know, for fear of their life to, to come to the United States. And so the guiding light, like I say, for us was to just to be mindful of that and to be sensitive to the kind of common trend for many of the guests who we were working with. And to the extent that we could, 
I will say 99.9% of the time, our colleagues in the task force had a similar attitude and understood and appreciated the, that commonality and the experience of the guests. But I think that it was oftentimes helpful to have us there as sort of the, the Lorax, right? We speak for the guests. Everybody else's job is to support the guests. Our job is to try to articulate the needs of the guest population to understand the impact and effect that what the task force is doing is going to have on the guest population and try to make that work more effective. And so it was very, very good to have a G9 element sitting in the task force headquarters whose sole purpose is to be the advisor on the state of the civilian population, the guest population, and to provide advice and counsel on what is going to be the effect of our military operations on the guest population. And I'm using our doctrinal civil affairs phraseology to describe that in this kind of oddball environment, but that was the approach that we took. We were not conducting kinetic military operations, but we were moving big trucks around. We were moving lots of people around. We were doing a flavor of military operations. 10 or 15 years ago, we might have called it military operations other than war, right? And so just because those operations were focused on caring for a civilian population, that, that didn't make it any less important to have someone there providing insight into the civil environment. I think, if anything, it was more important. And we're very glad to be able to provide some of that insight. Good stuff. And uh, Steph, I'm just for, uh, if I could bring you into the conversation, can you tell us what was your role in the detachment? Certainly. My role in the detachment was to manage civil information. I also wound up dual hatting later on in the mission and supporting some of the messaging out to the guest population. And with this, Major Johnson and I actually had a conversation right before we went to Fort McCoy of having me as a dedicated civil information manager. And he asked what I thought about using the stability assessment framework as kind of a, a framework to build and conduct assessments and figure out how we can best affect population. And I had just been to the civil military planners course, not even a year before that. And my initial reaction was, no, we're going to be trying to kill a mosquito with a machine gun with that approach. It's too robust. And, and looking back, I kind of laughed at myself. I stopped and I thought about it and realized that we could take a modified approach with the stability assessment framework and tailor it and craft it to suit our needs at Fort McCoy. And so Major Johnson, I, I will always give you credit for thinking of that before we got out there. You never know what you're going to be walking into. But on the data side, at least having a general idea of the story we wanted our information to tell and how we wanted it to drive action, I was able to start looking into different systems that I could use to digitize some of this and automate it. I don't know if you want me to get into specific tools and techniques with that now, or if we want to hold off on that a little. Yeah, we'll get into that in just a moment. But uh, one of the things Major Johnson brought up earlier, talking doctrine and accomplishing hard CA tasks, it sounds like soft skills are really kind of a, a critical aspect of what you're doing. So perhaps separate from the sim, what were some of those soft skills you think were most important? Yeah, with soft skills, a lot of times when we're doing our drill weekends, will put together these training scenarios. And I've always advocated for having role players in your training scenarios, even if the focus of the training is not civil engagement assessment, because it allows you to kind of get reps on 
treating people like people, treating everyone with dignity and respect and understanding that, you know, a few weeks or months ago, they were in a horrible situation and jumped on a plane, not knowing where everything was going to take them. And, and they were kind of putting themselves in, in our hands and trusting us to make sure that they were taken care of and their families were taken care of. And so approaching engagements from a human first perspective, trying to make sure that people's needs were being taken care of, I would say was probably the biggest soft skill, not only because it kind of bought us some trust with the population, but also it would allow our engagements to get a lot deeper. We would encourage the Marines and soldiers regularly when offered to sit down and have tea with the families and learn a little more about them. And it's something that's preached in our schoolhouse, and it certainly proved true here. You know, we'd have a conversation, we'd do our engagement, and then they'd invite us in for tea, and we'd find out 10 times as much information when we sat down to have tea with them and learn about their family than we gathered during the, the proper engagement that had happened three minutes before that, right? In terms of soft skills, I would say that's number one. And then the the second soft skill is the, the outside of the box thinking. When you encounter issues and are trying to come up with solutions to them, one thing that came up while we were there was COVID. That was about the time that the Omicron variant had started spreading across the country. And there were quarantine barracks that you wouldn't want to go into without any kind of protection. And so we had Marines that were working with medical teams to get us full PPE so that we could make sure that we were serving the entire population and not those that were outside of the quarantine barracks. We had situations where Marines would recognize that kids didn't have activities and by working with some of the NGOs to get them coloring books or games that they could play, that that would keep them from exploring mischief in other areas, right? So the, the two soft skills I mentioned first, that human first perspective, and then just being creative and thinking outside the box really helped us. Good stuff. I think tying in those soft and hard skill aspects of being uh, effective civil affairs Marines, you both have the benefit of serving in a reserve capacity. So you both have civilian careers, civilian skills you can rely on. Major Johnson, if you could talk for a moment about some of those things that you've seen from your civilian career that translated well to operating effectively as a civil affairs Marine mobilizing the United States. From my particular background of, of being a Department of the Navy Office of General Counsel attorney, we are the guardians of fiscal law. So there's a thing called the Anti-Deficiency Act, which is designed to protect the power of the purse that Congress holds. And there's a rule under the Anti-Deficiency Act that prohibits the, the executive branch from accepting voluntary services or goods from an outside entity without some kind of authorization from Congress. And now there's a lot of those authorizations out there, but we did not have one laid down in particular for, for Operation Allies Welcome. If I'm sitting in a meeting and a new charitable organization is trying to get in and, and provide some, some services to the guest population, very helpful to have that perspective and say, we need one of the real lawyers to come in here and take a look and make sure that, that we're going to do this the right way. And that's really what it comes down to. And so I think having that background and perspective was helpful to just be another set of eyeballs on the work that we were doing to try to keep everything in line with the rules and regulations that govern us whenever we're doing any kind of military operation. Uh, and I like how you kind of tie that back into the authorities, which are going to dictate the military's ability to execute any mission. So that's really a great perspective. 
Schaefer, uh, what are your thoughts on that? What I learned in graduate school with a statistics and research methodology, knowing that I was going to be taking a, a very heavy data approach to this and that I wanted to try to automate and streamline as much of the reporting and data analysis as I could, those fundamentals are extremely helpful. And then beyond that, the work that I've done as a program manager and a consultant, I had a really kind of keen sense of what are the data points? What are the KPIs? What's the information that Major Johnson is going to want to see that can help him drive action in the camp? And so from the very beginning of it, uh, using the stability assessment framework, I was working backwards, actually all the way to that, right? Knowing that I would want to be capturing stability and instability factors on a quantitative and qualitative perspectives, I needed to understand how is the data going to be coded in the system that we used, what's that going to look like, and then walk my way backwards from that to actually build those surveys and assessment reports that our teams would use so that everything would pop out correctly and, and save me tens of hours every week trying to get the data straight. And so just having a, a general understanding of how data works, how to analyze it helped a lot. And then for my time as a program manager, I had learned a lot about Microsoft Excel, which I, I feel like most listeners right now probably just turned the podcast off because nobody likes to talk about Excel. But what was really powerful was having a general idea of what Excel could do. Note, I'm not saying that I knew how to do everything that I wound up doing, but I had a general idea of what it could do. And I spent you know maybe five, 10 hours with some Google searches and watching YouTube videos with just a general concept of what Excel was capable of. And I was able to use that to build a dynamic dashboard that also captured action items that we needed to accomplish, which it, without this probably would have taken 20 to 30 hours a week just to collate the data and to analyze it, and to figure out insights. I was able to do this uh, by downloading the data, popping it in the dashboard, and it would pop out results in 15 seconds. And so the power there is that we went from keeping myself busy analyzing the data to being able to focus on what the issues are and what the underlying uh, problems are that are causing those issues, and then work with the teams on creating solutions to help address them. And so I would say that from my civilian career, that was really what I brought to the table that helped us go from doing the job well to doing it great. Where was the data coming from? The teams had, through their phones, access to an application that we use to submit these reports. And so they would go out into the community, conduct civil engagements, assessments, and these might be three-minute conversations. These might be three-hour conversations, right? And they would typically take handwritten notes. It's kind of rude to be on your phone in front of someone jamming information in. And then after they would finish the engagements and assessments, they would go into this application, fill out the survey report, which, you know, it was kind of backwards built so that the data would come out the way that we needed it. And then as they submitted that, it went into a secure cloud-based system so that from the interagency operations center where my desk was, at any time of the day, I could log in and download the most updated information. What was really great about this tool is that it also worked in low and no connectivity environments. And so it, cell service was on and off there. And so if they submitted a report and there wasn't cell service, it worked in the background. 
once there was connectivity, it would batch submit every five minutes, which gave us the ability to see data coming in in almost real time throughout the day. And normally we didn't need to see that you know, on an hour by hour basis, but maybe if there had been a recent implementation or intervention that we had done and we were curious to see what those impacts look like, you know, thinking measures of effectiveness, we did have the ability to on kind of a minute by minute, hour by hour basis, see what was going on in the community. That's awesome. And you're talking about something that a lot of military professionals is unheard of, the idea of being able to collect subjectively obtained information, but in real time, get that up to decision makers. That's, that's terrific. So what were you doing with the, the data as it's being processed? You talked about how it was a time-saving measure. Uh, what were those key outputs that you were looking to obtain from the data? The key outputs that we were looking to obtain were resiliencies and grievances or instability factors and stability factors. And there was a lot of thought that went in on the front end of this, trying to predict what would be the big topics that we would see. Is it going to be food, clothing, medicine, legal services? The time that we had spent at Quantico gave us a finger in the air, at least, of what we thought we might run into. But this was not a a system that was created and then just stayed static the entire time. As, As information would come in and we realized that there were some areas that we had missed, I had the ability to go back into the system and add new topics so that our collectors could easily tag the report as it needed to be to allow for that easy analysis. Again, because of the way the data was captured, we were able to analyze trends really easily. And so you would ask, what were the things that we were looking at? They said stability and instability factors. We had some filters built into this so that we could see week over week or day over day, whatever time horizon we thought was appropriate, we could see clothing issues are on the rise or food issues are going down or medical care has spiked. And then we could dive in to the qualitative data behind that because quantitative data is great, right? It it tells you what direction to look. Qualitative data is what really gives you that underlying story and helps you understand the nuance of the situation. Um, And, you know, for example, um, I'm going to give a a hypothetical example. This is not something that's happened. I'll jump in and and take a crack at it. Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to split the episode here, so come back next week for the exciting conclusion. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations. Thank you all for what you're doing. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.